Yale Podcast Network. The Bears reached out to him or they trusted him. He wasn't carrying guns. He never carried a gun after he was a teen. And Charlie was with Bears all the time, up close and personal and everything. That's what I say. His strongest suit was love. He lived love. And what is love? It's this coherence of life. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. The fields of wildlife biology, neuroscience, and human psychology have long been separated into silos. As our guest today has written, when there has been a joining of disciplines, such as, for example, the routine use of monkeys in studies of human psychopathy or experiments on elephant reactions to LSD, it has usually brought a world of hurt to animals. Science acknowledges human similarity to animals in theory and in experimentation. We acknowledge that they're so much like us that they can serve as models for our psychiatric diseases. But, as our guest today points out, that neuroscientific similarity has failed to translate into ethical parity. In response to this asymmetry, Dr. Gay Bradshaw founded the paradigm-shifting field of transspecies psychology, which is the unified study of animal and human minds and experience. This idea that all animals, including humans, can be understood with a unitary model of brain, mind, and behavior is the scientific basis for animal rights. Dr. Gay Bradshaw has spent her life exploring the minds, emotions, and lives of animals and pushing and inspiring our society to better understand and respect them. An internationally renowned expert on animal trauma, her expertise includes the effects of violence on and recovery of elephants, grizzly bears, chimpanzees, orcas, parrots, and other animals suffering from human violence, both in the wild and in captivity. Early in her career, she made the groundbreaking discovery of post-traumatic stress disorder in free-living elephants, which is the topic of her Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, Elephants on the Edge. Her most recent book, Carnivore Minds, Who These Fearsome Beings Really Are, is an equally magnificent call for correcting how we think about and coexist with carnivores. Dr. Bradshaw holds doctorates in both ecology and psychology and has taught, lectured, and written widely about these fields in the U.S. and around the globe for over three decades. She is the founder and director of the Carullo Center and the Tortoise and the Hare Sanctuary in Jacksonville, Oregon, where she lives. Dr. Bradshaw is the rare combination of first-rate scientist, gifted storyteller, moral visionary, and blazingly original thinker. Dedicated to the search for the truth about who animals are and uninhibited by traditional orthodoxy. As her friend, the bear expert Charlie Russell wrote, What most strikes me about Gay and her work and what makes her stand out is that I saw that she was telling the truth. In that way, she was just like another one of my bears and very much unlike most other scientists. Using the careful logic of science, Gay painstakingly and eloquently writes the record. Dr. Bradshaw, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Hi, nice to be here. How did you first become interested in animals? I read in your one of your earlier books, Elephants on the Edge, an anecdote about a visit to the zoo you took as a child. But I'm wondering, how did you first become interested in, in this field and in these other beings? Now, that's a, um, a question I get very often. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the, the correct question is, when did I really become aware of animals? Um, animals is other than a human or other than, or in some cases, um, something that's different or someone different than uh, who Mm -hmm. we are every day. So I would say that really the question would be, when did I understand this, um, understanding animal emotions and minds as um, a very important question to explore and articulate and communicate uh, in collective language, which I chose to be science. That's fascinating. I mean, it reminds me of a quote from Carl Jung, who I know has been influential on your thinking. I hope you won't mind if I quoted you. He says, and you quote him, as scientific understanding has grown, so our world has become dehumanized. Man feels himself isolated in the cosmos because he is no longer involved in nature and has lost his emotional 
quote, unconscious identity with natural phenomena. So it's, and I think this is sort of implicit in your books that there's sort of this well-worn idea that started in philosophy of, oh, we should be kind to these others because maybe it'll help us be cultivate our moral sense of other humans. But of course, that presupposes that we're not already kind of damaged by this myopia that it sounds like you're mentioning. I think that this topic is so volatile, you know, whether you call it uh, animal rights or animal studies or plant-based vegan or anything like that, because it's a fundamental epistemic and ontological question and issue. Um, really the way that I'm approaching and that I have hoped <laughs> to evolve in myself is to really dissolve these internal constructs, um, not just external, but internal constructs, which creates this othering. Um, it's my belief um, from my own experience and also working and talking with other humans, such as Charlie Russell, that um, other animals don't do this othering. There isn't this pre-categorization of, oh, you know, you're a human, oh, you're a bear, oh, you're an elk, or you're a puma. Now, Obviously, there is some kind of um, discernment. Uh, a puma acts very differently, for the most part, around a bear than he might around a salmon or a deer and vice versa. However, that is more of sort of the inverse. In other words, it's again, this is my belief and my experience and others like Charlie Russell who have worked there and lived intimately and been included within say in Charlie's case, grizzly bear, brown bear society, that all of nature, which includes us, really functions um, as one seamless organism. And only discernment in the sense of a puma decides to eat a deer um, and obviously eats a deer and not another puma because of the particular circumstance. So in a sense, you can think about it maybe visually like um, a, a still lake, so it looks very coherent. And then you toss a, a pebble in. And when you see that pebble uh, break the water, you see ripples, you see change, but then it settles back into this very continuous, coherent whole. And I believe that that's really what our consciousness is in terms of other species, whether they're plant or animal or, or entirely. And I, my belief is the entire planet, rocks and everything like that. So we're talking about something which is radically different than our categorization. And again, these ideas are not novel. I mean, they're, they're not my idea. They are really reflected in quantum physics, which again comes from Western science. Um, they come from consciousness studies and of course other traditions around the world, other quote unquote human traditions. So really, um, in fact, when I started writing this book with Charlie Russell, um, which we might talk about a little later that's coming out in a year, um, I drew from a uh, my background, which was in mathematics and quantum physics. And I chose quantum physics, just like I have in my other two books. I draw from science, neurosciences and psychology, et cetera, as a heuristic tool, which uh, people find more comfortable. It's collectively accepted within a certain realm. And so I, I chose quantum mechanics because even neuroscience did not have the capacity to really express, quote unquote, scientifically, what in this case, Charlie Russell and the Bears experiences were. So quantum physics and quantum mechanics is a radically different uh, view of the world. And, um, and there is no othering in that sense. So a lot of the pieces, the, the concepts, the language, um, our everyday living just does not fit in in this Cartesian reductions does does not make does not compute <laughs> in in the larger sense of, of nature. So essentially, in my opinion, to really grasp um, to deal with the issues that we're dealing with on the planet today, to really grasp and understand quote unquote animal minds, the first step is dissolving these internal constructs, the, these these ways of perceiving these ways of experience, which are based in separation and othering. That's really fascinating. It reminds me of a quote by um, C.S. Lewis in his novel, That Hideous Strength, in which uh, one of the characters says, you cannot study a man, you can only get to know him. Um, yes. And it reminded me of, of 
an excerpt that Lindsay and I had the pleasure of reading from your forthcoming book about Charlie Russell in which he says that bear is not a generalization – or you write of Charlie Russell that bear is not a generalization or an abstract. But bear for Charlie Russell is a bear, a particular bear with whom there's a history and a relationship. And I'm wondering, can you explain – talking about Charlie Russell for anyone listening who doesn't know who he is, who, who Charlie Russell was and how his relationships with bears were particularly significant? Uh, Charlie Russell, uh, who passed um, last May, um, unfortunately, um, is was from Canada. He grew up in a we would call a pioneer family in uh, Canada and Alberta in the mountains, and he spent pretty much every day of his life um, in the wilderness and uh, around bears, grizzly bears, and also the spirit bear, uh, which is that white black bear. And then for about 10 years, he lived in uh, the Kamchatka, which is the far east of Russia, the peninsula, uh, with brown bears. And brown bears are related to grizzlies. They're sort of a cousin. They're kind of the uh, Eurasian cousin of grizzly bears. And, um, you know, his he had a particular affinity and a particular understanding of bears. Um but really, Charlie was of this, uh, he didn't categorize. I mean, there were bears <laughs> and and he really behaved and perceived and lived ethically and practically from the way I was talking about in the sense of what how quantum mechanics, for example, describes the world. So for Charlie, uh, and we began our, our collaboration, I had done my elephant book and he had just finished his book called Grizzly Heart, which describes his experiences raising orphaned baby brown bears in Russia. And he uh, rescued them and he reared them as a mother bear and reintroduced them to the wild. So they became integrated, uh, fully thriving members of wild bear society. Um, and so the book that I'm writing about, Charlie and I were really our collaboration was um, to utilize my credentials as a scientist and the tools of science um, with his experiences, which we found the two of them resonated, um, and to really help articulate and help communicate to people, both scientists and the public, who quote unquote bears really were. So again, as I mentioned, uh, the I drew on quantum mechanics, uh, and it was it was difficult for people. We shared um, some of our our, our ch the chapters I wrote where I inter you know wove the science with his experiences. It was very difficult for people to grasp that because that experience and the animal experience is as the way I described, like this lake, this continuous, this seamless fabric in which we live. And again, um, Charlie, when he raised these babies, um, he basically was kind of this living experiment, if you want to think of live a living microcosm of what I'm suggesting that we must do. And that is, like I said, dissolving these inter internal constructs. And he had to dissolve these, um, any vestigial ideas, perceptions, ways of being uh, of, quote unquote, we'll call it modern humanity. Not all humans have, have this, what we call our Western way of looking at things. Um, and he had to dissolve them in order to be able to teach and guide these young bears on how to be a bear. So you can't teach or guide or care for another being unless it's going to be congruent with whom they need to be in their adulthood. So essentially, Charlie was human on the outside, fully functional, cognizant of human affairs, um, but he saw the world through the eyes of brown bears. What does it look like to earn the trust of a bear and to overcome those constructs, which, as you said, are so deeply ingrained in our practices? Well, I'll, I'll speak of Charlie and I'll speak of myself um, because we, we've shared so much together and of my own experience. Um, I think there's many different ways. I think it's very much in parallel with um, any kind of uh, traditional or, or kind of consciousness studies or uh, meditation, say Buddhism or uh, mystical Christianity, any tradition where there is a sense of going beyond the mind, um, tapping deep into consciousness, 
um, looking at an experience in the world from a, what we would call non-dual way instead of dualistic, which is this categorization. So it's really sinking down and again into this depth of understanding, and again, I talk about this in the book, of understanding the world, understanding and, and experiencing um, the world, everyday living, from something that is not attached to our form, our human body or bare body. And so it, it doesn't mean that we're not in that form. That happens to be the vehicle, you know, the vehicle by which we, you know, the currency by which we do exchange, you know, we, how we live on the planet. But the notion is somehow uh, to tap down very deeply and not be defined by that and hence not being defined by that identity, in this case, not being defined by a human identity, but functioning through that medium, then we do tap into an essential nature, which is shared by all life. So there's many different portals. Um, and again, I think you can look at um, consciousness studies and uh, meditation and Buddhism and things like that, where you know people have their quote unquote awakening and their enlightenment through different ways, through different portals. Um, I chose, for example, in this particular case, to use the conceptual to say in my first two books, using neurosciences and neuropsychology, which does interface on consciousness studies, right? Um, and I use that not as a construct, but as what I would call as sort of nail polish remover. In other words, using science, which does demonstrate, we're talking about very conservative science, neuroscience that does document and does demonstrate that non-humans have, as you said, the same brains and the processes in the brain that govern consciousness and our emotions and thoughts. So I used, I use that particular portal conceptual portal to basically dissolve the concepts. And then there is the kind of more uh, practices of, of really getting deep down inside because um, again if you look at the kind, you know kind of a very conventional way epigenetics and changing this whole idea of separation this whole idea of othering has is very deeply ingrained in our psyches and our bodies and our ways of doing and not only that um, it is reinforced so as anyone has probably experienced if you go on to a, a retreat say a meditation retreat or uh, even vacation, you know, whatever, when you go back into quote unquote society, it's very reinforcing of these constructs. It does not typically our, our society, our relationships and everything are really, um, they reify and they uh, um, sort of strengthen um, and reinforce this othering ways of life. So, what we're really talking about when you say, how does one do that? Um, there's a very, very difficult point, like with Charlie. Charlie, uh, it was not easy. I mean, when you are living as he did, um, and, and this is the way I would describe it, as a bear in human form, which does not mean he had any antipathy toward humans, but that was his milieu. And he was living in a way the way bears are. And bears, as he maintains, are very open. They're already there they're already open and essentially they're just waiting for humans to respond in kind. Now, that doesn't mean that every bear uh, wants to be, as he points out, wants to be your friend. You know, it's just like anything else. Some bears are ready, some bears are not. And unfortunately, um, because of the relentless human violence of harassment, of darting, of killing, of shooting, um, the habitat uh, loss, the habitat fragmentation, etc., cetera, uh, bears have started to change, just as I write about with the elephants and just what I write about pumas is, and again, in conventional terms, we would talk about trauma. And most of the bears that we see here in North America have sustained one or two events of trauma. Um, I would hazard to say that the majority of bears in North America have had their mother shot or have seen someone shot, have been shot at, um, and they've seen killed or they've been snared, something. And the same with all the deer. And that does take, that does take a, a, its toll. So again, there's many different ways of getting down to that. But I would say one way of, of doing this is through uh, these kinds of practices of meditation, uh, anything that reaches a deeper consciousness. 
It's extraordinary to to think about that in the context, too, of knowing that then the bears are still receptive to having coexisting peaceful relationships with humans, given our history of what we've done to them. In your book, Carnivore Minds, you tell an amazing anecdote, too, that reminds me of that about a diver named Fred Boyle, who as you write, is diving with a free diving with a group of whales who, like the bears, have surely had, you know, remember whaling and have had many family members or other people they're socially related to, other whales, excuse me, not people, you know, be murdered by humans yet are still extraordinarily receptive to an interaction with a human, in this case, in which a whale had just given birth. It's a very moving story. When you connected with Charlie Russell, can you tell us about your work on elephants and PTSD that led to this initial connection? Yeah, uh, just a comment on the whales. Um, and Charlie makes this comment about the bears um, and and Fred, who's who you described it, the whales and the sharks. Um, they're they're awed by the capacity. Uh, in the case of the whales, as Fred talked about, these these whales, these sperm whales, witnessed the the mass killing of their relatives, and that what he was just so astounded that given that, that they still were welcoming him. In his case, he was diving. Um, he's a free diver and it was off the Azores. And and these whales, he couldn't figure out why they were all gathering. Well, it turned out that a, a little baby whale, sperm whale had been born. And what they were doing is they would pass the baby around to each of the whales. And then the mother would lift the baby whale up so that the baby could breathe and then bring the baby down to meet everyone in the family and, and in the community. And they saw him there and they did the same thing to him. In other words, they were welcoming him in um, or to be part of this incredible sacred ritual. And the same thing with Charlie. Charlie had the same thing. He was identified by a female brown bear. These bears are like 800 pounds. They're very, very powerful. And she identified him, as he puts it, you know, it was her decision. He had no say. She left her cubs with him. And this was three sets of cubs over seven years. So Charlie was enlisted, recruited. We can call it press ganged, as he said he didn't have a choice. (laughs) Um, to take care of her babies while she went off to get rid of a a male bear or to do food or something like that. So that openness was and receptivity was, is so astounding. And both Charlie and Fred says that, is it the seeds? I think the way I write it is that the seeds of their consciousness are still there, that they have not lost this uh, depth of connection to life. Like, like we have in that way. And the elephants are very much like that as well. As you said, I started off, um, and again, the reason I I started going into elephants was that uh, I I started my second PhD with, uh, well, it wasn't so well-formed, but sort of my, what I look back later now, I know what I was doing is that I was really trying to find collective language for my personal experience with quote unquote non-humans. And that's when that awareness came up. And um, I had been in Africa and uh, I recalled this incident, which I didn't, I, I was I was focusing on lions. I was part of a National Science Foundation uh, lion study. And I, I wasn't, I was very naive and I was very ignorant in, in many ways. And I, I really didn't understand the significance. But when I was there, the park ranger was, they were like, you know, astounded and puzzled and flabbergasted that they'd found that young elephant males, young bulls, um, who were teenagers, had were responsible for killing over 100 white and black endangered rhinoceroses, and they sexually assaulted some in, in case, and they had that on camera. Um, and I mean, that was extraordinary. And so that became sort of this uh, lens for me to start to understand and, and examine that from the perspective of neuropsychology. And that very easily fell out um, as a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress or, or PTSD, because they had suffered, the, the young bulls who were responsible for that, which is, elephants don't do that. For when they're herbivores, and they're very pacific, uh, they don't do that kind of thing. Um, and it turned out that they were all cull. They would have been there. They were uh, survivors of mass killings from helicopters. Their mothers were, they lost their mother. These were babies. They were probably one or two years old. Um, they lost their mothers. They were then grabbed and translocated and taken and put in these parks for the purpose of repopulating parks because all of the 
parks, all the elephants and, and big five have been decimated by hunting. And then ecotourism started to blossom in South Africa uh, after uh, the sort of the, just before the apartheid fell. And so they had gone through a series of severe traumas. And again, all of this was very, uh, was very scientifically solid because as you brought up, the neurosciences and the neuropsychology of in biomedical research, et cetera, is all based on this unitary model. So all I did was put the pieces together and uh, and 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 just kind of like I put the pieces and connect the dots. So a quote unquote diagnosis of PTSD was very conservative. And it falls out quite readily, and it's totally consistent with all of neurosciences and biomedical research. The it was statistically significant because it was not just quote unquote one incident. There were over 100 rhinoceroses that were killed, so it was statistically significant. And the other thing that was sort of eyebrow raising was the fact of that were quote unquote wild elephants. These were not elephants in zoos and circuses. Now you see this kind of behavior, and you see these psychological states of, of in tigers and uh, belugas and elephants and any animal that's kept in captivity, like a zoo or a circus. Um, again, that's nothing new to report. The only thing new is actually saying it because we're culturally conditioned not to, to see that elephants and other animals suffer psychologically. We're seeing them as behavioral, not psychological beings. And also when we go to a zoo or circus, that's where most people see these animals and they see them and it looks normative that an elephant is swaying back and forth. Um, so there's this myth that just keeps getting perpetuated and it gets perpetuated because it's money making. And there's a psychological thing about that as well. Um, there's big money. There's big money in elephants, um, you know, putting them on display. Um, big money in terms of having these animals exploited. And we can go beyond these wildlife to look at the uh, farmed animal industry as well. Hmm. I mean, it's fascinating and a little bit chilling to think, too, that the premise of using an animal as a psychiatric model in drug development or in investigations of depression or psychosis or schizophrenia or other disorders in humans presupposes that substrate. And if you're looking at a psychological thing, it, it's presupposing some level of affinity in the subjective experience. I'll be blunt. There's brainwashing that goes into education. Um, and when you read an article, in fact, I did a paper, I haven't published it, but my colleague and I did a paper on looking at trying to, you know, do a scientific foundation to um, eliminate uh, biomedical experimentation on primates, monkeys, etc. And um, when I first started, I was asked to write this paper, I thought, well, what, what new can I do? But the thing that I found out is when you look at these published uh, journal articles, where they're using a rhesus monkey uh, to look at, as you say, schizophrenia, whatever it is. Um, they start off with the conceptual thing. They don't say it. They just use that. And then as they start to report the results, they, there's a linguistic parsing. All of a sudden, the rhesus monkey is behavior. And they're making inference about human psychiatric and psychological disorders. So there's this kind of parsing into animal is object, animal is different, humans are this way and that way. Um, and this is very powerful. Again, it's very consistent with this whole paradigm of Cartesian reductionistic splitting that goes on. I talk about that in the elephant book, this notion of doubling, which uh, Robert J. Lifton, who's a psychiatrist, coined that term when he was talking about uh, the Nazi doctors. Um, his question in a very simplistic way was, uh, how could these men, I think they were all men, um, how, can, how can they be these healers? That's their profession. They were considered, you know, loving, good men of the community, et cetera, et cetera, and then experiment on, on prisoners. And that's the exact same thing. It's the splitting. It's this parallel existence. Um, you know, we get it when we watch television, we watch, you know, or we watch a movie or whatever. We see something and we're emotionally rot, you know, then the commercial for deodorant comes on and, you know, we wipe our tears and we move on. And so that's how deeply this paradigm of othering and reductionism is in our, in our, is defining our society. So it's very difficult um, to step out of it. And when one does step out of it, again, like I said earlier, there's a lot of repercussions. There's a lot of repercussions. It's uncomfortable. It's unfamiliar because it completely changes. 
it's the fundamental organizing principle of our mo- modern dominant society. The reason that it's threatening is that it calls our current setup into question all sorts of ways and basically points out the lack of morality and ethics of it. What is your vision for replacing that? You you paint it in, in Elephants on the Edge and in carnivore minds of a way in which humans and not just carnivores but all other animals could coexist peacefully. And I'm wondering, can you tell us about what that sort of positive vision is that would replace this current very exploitative system? Well, the whole process is a bit like the Queen Mary, changing the course of the Queen Mary. We have a mm-hmm. lot of momentum, you know. Um, the first of all is, I mean, and it also depends. I mean, humans and human conditions and states uh, around the planet are not the same. Um, the, I mean, there, there are individuals who are able to, in the sense of, um, like, for example, there are people who have enough funds and enough access to uh, plant-based food to be able to switch over to that from eating and exploiting farmed animals. There are some people who just don't have the means and the ways. So I wanted to bring that up, that this is quite a heterogeneous type of thing. Um, the vision is, as I think, first of all, is to uh, you know, commit to this practice and to understand it. So first of all is the conceptual. The second is to really, like any other kind of uh, spiritual process, um, is to really commit to that and, um, and examine one's life bit by bit. It's an everyday thing. It's not going to happen overnight. There can be huge changes overnight for an individual. Um, but to develop that kind of moral and ethical fortitude, uh, which people like Charlie Russell um, did. And uh, it's very difficult um, because, you know, also your our jobs, how we make money, how, how we uh, take care of our health, you, you know, you know, having an antibiotic. I mean, that's all based on animal testing. Um, so I think another important thing is to understand that this is complicated and it's messy and it takes time, but that doesn't mean we don't start right now. We start right now and start with the truth um, and take account self-accountability. That's really the most important thing. And that's what, you know, C.G. Young talked about, individuation. Kind of the good news is, is you can do anything you want. The bad news is, is that you have to be, <laughs> you're accountable for it. <laughs> do you see what I mean? And I think that's a very important kind of thing. I think we really need to instill that notion of doing these kinds of spiritual practices. Uh, it's beginning in the schools of mindfulness and um, ethical scrutiny and, and, and self-accountability. Um, and that's, that's hard to do. We, we've been uh, kind of um, massaged into uh, uh, kind of handing our responsibility, our accountability over the to, to the collective. Again, that's something that C.G. Young talks about. Um, but I think that's I think that's power, paramount, and I think that has to be taught. Is that is paramount? That is the most important thing in life: is the self honesty and accountability. Um, and then to uh, in every way one can uh, make changes in one's life. It's fascinating to hear you talk about science as a language to make sense of this relationship that struck you as opposed to sort of making your way in science and then kind of happening upon your passion refracted through science, which I think often happens. It strikes me because I think part of what's so fascinating and pathbreaking about the field that you've pioneered transspecies psychology is that it takes these two historically seemingly incommensurable fields, ethology and neurobiology, and says not only are these two things not inimical to each other, but they're mutually dependent and they're impoverished without the other. And I imagine, I mean, you must have encountered resistance to this intellectually given the immense sort of stakes people have in these fields and potentially keeping them separate. And and so I'm curious about whether it, it occurred to you from the beginning that, oh, these things are, are obviously related, how you parsed out their differences in your mind and challenges that you encountered in establishing it. Well, I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I could report something that was very methodical and <laughs> very conscious. Um, I I just did. I guess I would say that's kind of my soul drive. I And I think Charlie and I had we intersect in our in our sense of of our mission for truth, 
I, if you look at my academic or my quote unquote career CV, it's, it's rather haphazard. I was always looking, which I wasn't aware of, of figuring things out. And I did have an overarching commitment to quote unquote, do good in the world and to help nature and animals in particular, which I resonated with. Again, I never thought of that until I really reached my own kind of socialization period. I think it was, I don't know, maybe high school or college, or I don't know when it's something like that, when you really start to get indoctrinated within the, the social conformity that I became aware of, oh, animals are different and things like that. And so I, I just followed and I, I kept looking and I kept looking in the sense of searching. And uh, it, it all made sense. I was surprised. You know, when I first did the elephant, uh, that was my dissertation, and I quote unquote discovered elephant PTSD, I was, wow, I was excited. You know, I mean, oh, I thought that would solve everything. You know, elephants were teetering on the brink. They still are of extinction. I thought, oh, okay, great. You know, and, and, um, you know, I found science and I thought, well, that will solve it. You know, there's, you don't have to get into these messy ethical arguments and philosophical arguments. You can just say, well, this is science. And then science is supposedly our epistemic authority, the, the knowledge body that guides our policy law and, and what we do, at least a strong component of it. And, um, you know, it got all sorts of attention, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, <laughs> nothing changed. And I mean, it got on the cover of the New York Times. So in other words, it had a lot of coverage in the sense of uh, people's awareness, but on the ground, um, both in terms of other researchers, um, as well as policy managers, I mean, life kind of went on. In fact, South Africa, I think it was shortly after Elephants on the Edge came out, you know, reinstated cults, mass killings of, of elephants. So from my point of view, I was sort of startled and I was very depressed, actually. I mean, oh my God, you know, I thought that if this came out, oh, okay, everything, you know, now we know what to do, quote unquote, within a conventional epistemic authority and we can move on. Um, and so it took me a while to, uh, probably the word is mature and face reality <laughs> and uh, and not feel angry and, and upset about it. I mean, it certainly is quite disturbing um, to see the, the depth of denial, even among those who propose or who are quote unquote advocates uh, for animals. Um, but that's the nature of the quote beast. Um, and uh, it, it is frustrating. Um, like I said, I was, it was very upsetting to see this kind of thing. When you see the juxtaposition of this terrible, terrible suffering, terrible suffering of, of the innocence. And I will say that it is terrible to see that. Uh, and I, I will never get over that. Um, but where I have made a shift is this notion of, um, just keeping eyes on the prize and um, moving like our organization, it was called the Karula Center. Now it's the Karula Center for Nonviolence, really putting into action and modeling and encouraging um, a way of being, which is really congruent with and reflects uh, the way non-humans are. And it astounds me, you know, we live out in the country and I'm just astounded at the generosity of the wildlife. I mean, they have such a hard life. Um, they are denied what we covet for ourselves. You know, they don't have anything to eat. You know, you can go to jail. In fact, in my carnivore book, I mentioned this woman, uh, older woman in Florida, who, who went to jail for giving food to bears. Um, and, uh, you know, she was persecuted. And people who do form relationships with wildlife are persecuted. So as I say in the book, um, you know, in the, in the case of bears, it's, it's perfectly legal. All the wildlife agencies promote it to how to bait bear. They give classes how to bait bear, how to bait deer, all of that thing, which is quote unquote feeding wildlife. Um, and they do that so people can shoot them and kill them. But if you put out food, if I put out food or that you, we are subject like this woman, Mary Musselman, you know, she went to jail and she eventually died because she was quote unquote caught feeding birds. And it's a very sad story. And there are other people who have, um, Charlie Vandergaal was a, a gentleman in, uh, in Alaska who went through a terrible thing because he was fraternizing with bears. He gave them food. And, um, so, you know, for me, it's just the nature of the, that's where we are 
as a species. I, I, I don't recommend that we become, which I think it's very popular to say now, you know, people hate being human, humans are bad. And I, I, that's not it. It's the kind of humans that we are. Um, and so I think that's what we need to do is try to be, you know, you know, that famous saying, you know, um, try to be who your dog thinks you are, <laughs> you know, it's, that, it's kind of like that. Um, and I think that's very joyful. I think right now, and again, this is really sort of the book that I, uh, um, about Charlie and the bears is to me, it's a step toward really, um, showcasing and, and living like we can. And, and it's very much a part of the spiritual movement, the awakening movement that's going on in terms of, as I mentioned, you know, Buddhism and return, like Richard Rohr talks about, you know, the, the mystical Christianity, all, it's all non-dual. Richard Rohr talks about that. He's a Franciscan who, who talks about that. And it's right there. It's right there. So we're right in, a, I think, this sort of sheer zone of the quote unquote paradigm shift. Um, but to me, it's, it's at least now that's how I feel. And what I, my goal is, is to, to, to be a bear, you know, um, and, uh, certainly bears can have their bad hair days, you know, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're neither saints nor are they devils. I mean, they're, they're make, trying to make a living and they're good people just like all the other animals, you know? And so, Essentially, that's it. That's what what I call nature reality, you know, living nature reality and, and, and moving toward that. We've got a ways to go, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that we can't individually go there more quickly than than the larger culture. You write so beautifully in your new book about Charlie Russell, and, I'll, and I quote it here, if the search for the truth was the engine of Charlie's life, then it was love that provided the fuel. And later on, learning becomes something that isn't just about you collecting facts for your own purposes. It's about seeing the world through their eyes and getting to know what is important to those you love. And I'm curious, against this backdrop that you've described of the horror of the genocide that we've undertaken against wildlife, how do you approach the second element of your work? If the first is you know, the scientific study and the pursuit of truth and teaching, and the second being direct help trying to recover these animals and heal them. How do you go about that when in a context like this? Um, you mean what I'm doing specifically for this? Yes, both. Both. I know that you live in Oregon on a tortoise and hare sanctuary, so we'd, we'd love to hear about that. But but also just broadly in general, um, when you think about these animals have undergone what you aptly call this multi-generational historical trauma based on mm -hmm. what humans have done to them, how do we go about healing that interspecies relationship? Well, I think um, an integral part and the first step um, is what I described mm -hmm. is to, uh, you can call it commit to a spiritual path, however you want to call it consciousness. In other words, uh, and that's obviously very individual for me specifically. Um, I do a lot of meditation. I um, Every morning and every evening, I call it the parentheses of my life. You know, so when I wake up in the morning, I don't go to my email. You know, I, I either listen to a lecture by uh, a spiritual person, whether it's Adishante, Richard Rohr, Cartoli. I do my meditation to tap into that space so that when I proceed in my day, whether it's writing a paper, talking to someone on the phone, having an interview, um, caring for the animals here in our sanctuary, um, so that as much as possible, I try to do everything from that space and try to touch into that space more and more so it becomes um, a reflex action, so that the reflex action is not fear, it's not anger, it's not defensiveness, it's not sadness. I mean, all of those things are fine. It's just not getting caught into them. So that is like our tagline for our organization is becoming who animals need us to be. So at that level, that for me is, is fundamental and it's essential. On the kind of form level, if you want to call it that, uh, we have, it was not planned, but we have a small sanctuary um, it's the tortoise and the hare. Someone dumped a rabbit one time and, you know, we took this rabbit in and, and we ended up taking another rescuing rabbits who were treated so terribly. 
Um, and then I was asked to take in 15 endangered special needs desert tortoises. The lab was closing down in Nevada. And so since I'm a scientist and whatever, and we were able to accommodate them in terms of the climate and their care during the year. So we became the tortoise in the hair. That was not my design. It just happened. Uh, and we, as much as possible, support the wildlife here. Um, and we're, we're in this hunting zone. Um, and so, you know, I'll just bring this up as an example, you, you know, for the, for the care of the tortoises and the care of the rabbits to a certain extent is not necessarily congruent with what I would envision for the future. It's very intensive. I have to do laundry, you know, we, we have all these different things, but in my mind, that's the choice that I've made is I want to support these individuals. We also have rescued um, domestic turkeys who are going to be slaughtered. And uh, we have roosters that, uh, who were rescued from the Caparo um, incident from, from Brooklyn. And I think that's important. You know, I think that, that the question of quote unquote domestication is what I call historical trauma. I mean, it is a historical kind of trauma. I don't think that domestication uh, is a is very positive having you know control and trying to control other beings, um, but we have a way to go. Uh, I am a committed plant based um, eater, you know, um, and I think that's good. I think it's important. There's a lot of questions that we we may not be able to answer until we get there. So I always say, you know, encourage people become a plant based eater. You know, um, and um, we can figure out our things down the line. You know, people say, well, you know, plants are conscious. Yes, they are. And I, I truly believe that. Um, but at this juncture in my life, um, what feel, because I've decided to stay on the planet, I mean, I've decided to eat and live. Um, I'm a plant-based eater. And maybe as time goes on, it's kind of like, for example, you know, do what we can do right now to make an impact. And if everyone became a plant-based eater, we'd have a, I mean, I, I'm not the only one saying that this is sort of, you know, hardcore middle of the road scientists are saying this, you know, um, business people are investing in plant-based. I mean, this is a very logical thing in order to really quote unquote address some fundamental issues of being able to survive on the planet, climate change and da, 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 da. Um, but a large part of some of the questions, that's also what I think is, you know, do everything you can within yourself um, and new things will arise. It's like walking in the woods. You know, sometimes you, know, you go, okay, well, I'm gonna go to that place. Well, you don't necessarily know how you're gonna get to that place until you get to the top of the mountain and look down, right? And, and so I guess I, I also encourage not for us to get bogged down in essentially things that have become like how many angels on a pin. You know, there's some basic fundamental things um, at least that's what I believe. And I try to, I try to engage that in, in, in my life and we're opening a school. Um, we're going to be expanding our sanctuary to get land, um, to establish a school. And it's not a brick and mortar. It's more of a gathering place where we'll be able to take in animals, uh, farmed animals in who are in need and combine that with our online, which we have online courses and with spiritual, you know, consciousness practices, spiritual practices, and very, um, practical things of how do we care for these individuals. Uh, and, and that's really sort of how I think, because at the same time, we're quote unquote saving animals, um, which is a large part of not doing something to them as opposed to doing something. Um, we need to, and this is the motivation also for the school, at the same time, we have to reinvent, recreate our human-human relationship. Because right now, in the dominant world, the human-human relationship um, is privileged. And what we're talking about is, or I'm talking about, is a community, a way of living as a human, where the human-human relationship is not privileged. And the human dog, human tree, human whatever is, quote-unquote, just as important. And that really realigns you can think about it in terms of geometry right <laughs> you know you change the point and the, the human human relationship is is changed right so we need that's our school is this notion of how do we live with each other in such a way where we are embedded in nature and our human relationships and how we deal with each other 
is really guided and shaped by our understanding of what I'm calling nature consciousness. And part of, I mean, being embedded in nature is being food, right? And so I'm curious, does the ability to care for the beings who for most of our evolutionary history were above us on the food chain, that it's only recently that we've conquered the earth and had this happen, does caring for them and seeing them as fellow beings presuppose this domination that you're suggesting we should be trying to dismantle? What do you say to the idea that, it, well, it's sort of a luxury of, of not no longer being food to be able to see them in this way? Um, you mean that they are no longer food or we're no longer well, That food. we're no longer there. And I'm asking because there's a fantastic essay by um, the eco-philosopher Val Plumwood. Plumwood? Yes, uh-huh. you've yes. probably <laughs> read it. It's called yeah. Being Prey. And what's so, I mean, the essay is phenomenal, but so it's about, she was attacked by an alligator in 1985. And yeah, saltwater crocodile, yeah. Sorry, by a crocodile. And and she describes in exquisite detail what it was like and how she had been a vegetarian beforehand. Yeah. But but then she said, ironically, the experience just reinforced <laughs> her yeah. resolve. And so that's why it's such a kind of surprising document. And uh-huh. I, And the reason I find it so compelling is just that I guess it challenges the idea that thinking of ourselves as food, which we have been, I mean, and, and are, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. that that would carry with it a lack of regard um, for our quote-unquote predators. Yeah. No, I actually talk about Val Plumwood and, and quote that particular essay in the in the Carnivore Minds book um, when I'm about crocodiles. And it's it's phenomenal. And, and you know, <laughs> I, I hope everyone reads it. Um, you know, here she is. She, she's, you know, in literally, they call it, was it the death? The death, I forgot what it is. But anyways, the, what that's the MO of crocodiles, you know, uh, the salt waters, uh, crocodiles, and also the Nile, the humans are on the menu. I mean, that's kind of like, as you said, you know, they, they really are. It's not like just a chance encounter. People say, oh, you know, pumas and bears. No, that's not true. But for the salt water, what it appears from, from what biologists and other people have said historically, humans are definitely on the menu. And here she is in this death, what do they call it? I forget it was deathing, where, you know, this crocodile sees her in her boat, grabs her, and three times, death roll three times, I mean, which is phenomenal that she escaped. And as she said, you know, what her feeling was, you know, like Woody Allen says, I saw my life, you know, flash before my eyes. Well, for her, it was like this outrage. How can I be food? You know, this is absolutely outrage, you know? And um, so, yes. And I think that's part of this notion of privilege that I was talking about. Um, And it's the stepping down and, and looking uh, at the plants and the animals and, um, as we would a teacher, you know, um, and being humble and understanding um, this also feeds into very practical kinds of things. Uh, you know, sometimes a, a bear who's starving, well, this happens in, in Russia, will eat a human uh, or a puma. I mean, if you look at statistically, it's very, very, very low. Same with the white sharks. And I, I quote that in the carnivore book, um, but it happens. And I think that that's something, you know, we have to get a grip on, as they say, you know, SHIT happens, you know, it's not really nice to be eaten. Um, It's not really nice to have, you know, to to die, but that's what happens. Um, And so I think that's a really important thing psychologically. Mm. Again, one way to look at it is everything in our culture is a way to control nature so we don't have to deal with any of those things. Mm, That reminds me of, she points out how that episode was narrativized in the, in the press and how the journalists sort of freighted it with this masculinist, almost sexualized adjectives and, and Mm. that bore no likeness to what the experience of, of almost being eaten actually was. So anyway, you have this metaphor in, in your book of thinking of animals as sort of variations on a theme, which I thought was such an inspired iteration of the mm-hmm. tree metaphor. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, I'll just speak of my own experience. It's really fun. Um, Charlie talks about it uh, where he, he says, uh, um, he says with Brandy, Brandy was that female brown bear, right? Who, who press ganged him into being a babysitter, you know? And 
for him, it was like all of a sudden he was, he said, you know, he wasn't in control. And he says, I, I don't, I like being out of control. And as I talk about it, he doesn't mean like, you know, if you're skiing down a, a hill and, you know, and you're like, whoa, you know, adrenaline kind of thing. He's talking about this notion of not being on top, not being in control. And it's a joyous world. I mean, it doesn't mean, you know, that, that we're toddlers. It just means that there's, you know, you know, this is Shakespeare with Horatio, you know, there's more to, I forgot, is it, you know, more than what you've dreamt of Horatio than you're in your philosophy. Right. And I think that, uh, it's a wonder, and so you know, <laughs> Louis Armstrong, David Adam. It's a wonderful world, and there's so much to learn about everything, and it, it's a tremendous. It's tremendous when you let go of having to be in control, of having to know. It's great because uh, there is this notion of trusting in life that we are part of life. And we are life. And to see beyond these forms is, is great. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. And it's a tremendous feeling of inc inclusivity. Um, when you are, like that's with Charlie. Charlie was accepted into, and I don't even think it was accepted into barrack society. It's just that he, um, he let himself because of who he was and they, the bears reached out to him or they trusted him. He wasn't carrying guns. He never carried a gun after it. he was a teen. Um, and Charlie was with bears all the time, up close and personal and everything. And um, and there's a it, these are things that we have to get used to. Again, that's how, what I believe. What does it feel like? That's what I say. His strongest suit was love. He lived love. And what is love? It's this coherence of life. Again, back to the quantum mechanics, the reason I first drew on that was because when you talk about trust and love and respect and mutuality, reciprocity, um, this notion of space and time, completely different, which is what Charlie would it just express and experience. That's why I went to the quantum mechanics, because they don't exist. These are things that are, you're in the substrate, you know, you're, you're, you're part of that substrate. And it's, it's fabulous absolutely fabulous. Well, to close, Dr. Bradshaw, we like to ask each of our guests for books or films that have influenced how they think about animals in profound ways. I'm curious, do several come to mind for you that you would recommend? Well, I know it sounds weird. I, I can't really recommend any books or films, I honestly. Well, well in, a way, in a way, your work really highlights the problem with that question, which is, that books or films can't approach in some ways the knowing firsthand that someone like you or like Charlie Russell has been able to achieve? Well, I'll tell you one. I, I What influenced me are, are um, the the people that I've met, mm -hmm. both non-human and human. You know, I would go back to even, you know, for example, my classical Chinese professor, Chauncey Goodrich mm -hmm. in Santa Barbara, um, uh, Vine Deloria, who's American and Sioux Indian um, a scholar, um, Charlie Russell, of course, mm -hmm. um, and uh, quantum mechanics, uh, David Bohm, um, and and it's not so, it's not their writing. I mean, and and these animals I've met uh, that I live with, and and um, it's it's that's experience. And again, I'll make a comment: is that's really what Charlie and I, and I in particular, are really trying to. Um, express is a different pedagogy, a different way of learning, a different way of knowing, um, and a different relationship to, to knowledge in that way. So I, I, I'm sort of bereft of being able to, uh, oh, I love the sorrow and the pity. <laughs> that, that's a, Le Chagrin, La Pitié is an amazing, amazing uh, uh, piece of work. And I would say there's a recent one that I'm watching, it's called A French Village, uh, Vie Française, and, and it comes from France, and it was a TV show when it goes on for you know you can get it on DVD or whatever on Netflix or something, but those are fantastic in the sense of they really uh, offer individuals to um, understand their fundamental morals and ethics and and what it means uh, to be living and experiencing things. Um, so uh, I would say I would say Daphne Sheldrick. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I, not something, I, I mean, I always read a lot, but 
but honestly, in terms of your specific questions, uh, it's truly uh, what I consider these e exemplars, you know, these incredible exemplar. And, and I have been very blessed to be able to have, have spent time with him. Well, that's a much better way of phrasing that question, I think, in terms of exemplars. And, and you're certainly that for, for me and Lindsay, Dr. Bradshaw. So thank you. And for so many other people, too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, too, to our terrific audio engineer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale Broadcast Studio, and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Dr. Bradshaw and her work. Thanks for listening.